everybody, and welcome back to the podcast, where we get to hear from leaders in the Catholic creative world every week. On this episode, we're talking with Patrick Kilner, devoted husband, father of seven free-range children, and owner of Tower Hill Realty. Patrick talks with Anthony about the importance of being dispensable at work, how to find the right vessels for your talents and skills, and how to create a culture of sacrifice and hard work. As always, thank you to our Patreon sponsors for making this podcast possible. Let's get started. I think it would be cool to just sort of give us some context for like where you are, uh, what you do now, and how you got there. So who are you, man? (laughs) Who am I? So I don't think I can be separated from being a dad, right? Mm -hmm. That's, you know, I think... So often, I had the the honor of, of being interviewed recently for, uh, there's a, a Catholic guy who's, he's got a blog here locally, and he's really excited about finding Catholics in the area. And it's like, so what are you about? I'm like, well, mm-hmm. just drop my kids off at school and, you know, mm-hmm. and, I, and, I, and I enjoy coaching them and that sort of thing. So it, as you get to know me, you'll hear me talk in paradigms that are basically dad paradigms. So mm-hmm. everything that I do... I do through the lens of the vocation of being a father, I would Mm. say. If you had to sort of boil me down, like, why do you get out of bed at the hour that you do? Why do you come home at a certain hour? (laughs) How do you spend your weekends? What drives and motivates your exercise or your, your business life? It's all framed through this real belief that I'm here on earth to get these little souls that we've been blessed with, Alan and I, to heaven. And that if my business doesn't serve that, it's worthless. If my social life doesn't serve that, if my physical life doesn't serve that, then it's pretty much not worth doing. That's my calling, right? So it's my my vocation. Everything else serves that. And I feel really fortunate that that's the case, right? Because I think oftentimes people, and in particular, and I did this early in my career, I had this idea that I'm trying to balance these two vocations, like my professional vocation and my, my fatherhood vocation. And I realized the fatherhood vocation overlies everything Mm. to the degree that 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 happens and happens effectively and that i keep working at that art and science and the spiritual life that has to go into that then Mm. i'm going to be successful Uh, if i drop the father thing and go well i'm just going to focus on the on these other aspects that support that i think support the father thing it's not going to work so i say that's kind of who i am you know in a more traditional sense uh, born and raised in the dc metro area or Providence Hospital. My parents met at Catholic U. I ended up going there 20 some years later. Oldest of nine kids. Wow. Um, your classic type A, everybody follow me up the hill. If you don't, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to drag you type guy, right? Um, you know, a little bit like, oh, he's a little intense. Okay. Um, that's, uh, you know, I got that kind of honestly, you know, where my dad was a huge, it still is a huge influence in my life as, as just a, a father figure as a man of faith, as a guy who just, just gets after it on a daily basis and still can't out, outwork him. He, he now works for my company, um, wow. which is awesome. So my dad, it's like the most amazing honor to have the guy who taught you how to work now work for my company, which is really awesome. And, uh, and so, and his humility is a real example to me that he can come to his you know, son who still doesn't know as much as him and come to him and say, Hey, on this particular thing, can you help me out? Really awesome. Just tremendous relationship there. And, um, and then my, my brother works with me, my youngest brother. So there's four brothers of the nine. And, and uh, so he's my youngest brother, Michael. He is everything that I'm not for business um, and a tremendous blessing to the business. He's the COO. He's the ops guy. He's the finances. He's the operations. We need technical support. Mike's there. He does an amazing job. I know you work with your brother. So it's, it's awesome to kind of see, look, I'm going to stay in my lane over here, vision casting, mm-hmm. big ideas, speaking and motivating. And Mike's on the other side, you know, and we kind of realized that here, just throw out a book recommendation, Rocket Fuel, great book if you want to understand what your strengths are as a leader of a company and where you're not strong mm-hmm. and how to, you know, how to stay in your lane. And so my brother and I read that and we're like, oh my gosh. We're like, we actually are made to work together. So, and, you know, so it, now we've got number seven on the way, Elena and I. And oh, seven congratulations. Way, awesome. Yeah, thank you. So August, it's really cool. And, you know, they're, they're pushing for another girl. We have, you know, we have our youngest right now is a girl. And so we're hoping for another girl. So I've got four boys and the, the hope is the third girl. But we'll take any baby. <laughs> we'll take what we can get. Yeah, you know, exactly. you know? As long as it's the baby, we're, we're happy. Um, 
<laughs> and the kids are super excited. It's, it's an awesome thing. You know, our kids just delight. And it's one of this, like you could give them anything you want an Xbox. No, like Xbox or baby, baby hands down all the time. That's right? amazing. Um, like, and, and, but that's cause we make fun of kids who use Xboxes too much. So actually, we, we build up babies and we put down Xboxes. Um, so, Classic behavioral conditioning. Absolutely. There, yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, so that, that's kind of family life for us. I, I, you know, coach kids soccer. Um, I got little wrestlers, we, you know, in the family, the, the boys are wrestlers and my wife homeschools, two of them, two of them are at my alma mater, the Heights in, uh, in Potomac, Maryland. And that's a mm-hmm. delight. And then our fifth, I think I told you about this, our fifth, John Paul passed away. Oh, um, so he had, he had a, a terminal illness called spinal muscular atrophy. It is the most, the most common of the rare diseases, if you will, for children. And it's the leading killer of children under the age of three. So wow. we had like had no idea what this was, uh, what was up. And JP's life was an amazing blessing. He, he was with us for 14 months, just five years ago, he passed away. And so, you know, total change, like without John Paul, I don't have a brokerage. I don't have, I don't understand talent as well as I do. Um, because when you have a child with special needs, you have to focus on that child. We were basically running a NICU out of our house for over a year. And because of that, I had to be totally dispensable to my business. Hmm. And that meant that I had to find really talented people to go execute on, on running the business. And mm-hmm. not just running it, but like taking the ball from me and, and, and doing everything else. So I transitioned from like quarterback to owner really fast. Right. Um, so what, what, I don't think any people here know what the business is. So could you tell us a little bit about that? And then yeah. I want to ask about that specific moment in your life. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I run a real estate company. So I, I'm sitting at my brokerage here in Bethesda, Maryland. I own a brokerage now called Tower Hill Realty. We're 15 months since we opened the doors. I started it on John Paul's birthday, December 6th, just about a year ago. Also feast of St. Nicholas. So St. Nicholas is totally been the man <laughs> and made sure that financially we're able to, you know, pay our bills during severe traumatic, you know, you have a really sick kid. It costs you a lot of money and it costs the business a lot. Yeah. Tower Hills around. I, um, but back then this is six, going back six years ago when he was born, I had, it was me, an executive assistant. And I had just brought on a buddy of mine to be a buyer's agent. So I was running a, a little group, Pat Kilner, you know, the Pat Kilner group, you know, you, you run into real estate agents all the time. And I started to bring people on because I, I was at least smart enough to realize I couldn't do everything on my own. Mm-hmm. And I'm really bad at paperwork. So I needed somebody <laughs> to help me with that. And so she, she was not only great at paperwork, she was great at everything else administratively. So she, uh, Cheryl actually is just in the next room over. She's still with me all these years later, working for the Kilner Group now. So Kilner Group exists within Tower Hill. And so that time was, I basically was in the hospital with him and I went, all right, you two are running the show. You're meeting the clients. I'm just going to be on the phone and I'm going to coach you. Mm-hmm. And I coach you through everything. So what I realized really quickly is that God is giving me this opportunity to one, realize I can't do it on my own. And it's a disservice to my family to think that I'm indispensable to my business at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of small businesses. It keeps small businesses small to believe that nobody can do it as well as you can. Mm. Um, this, this belief that, or that I'm only going to give people things that aren't worth my talent, right? I'm so talented. I'm going to give other people stuff. Well, what it would look like if you hired people that were more talented than you, your world blows up. What would it look like if your job was to find bigger opportunity for really talented people instead of trying to not hire really talented people. I, I would have advice from other people in the business and they go, really what you want to hire is people who have failed or who don't have the, the confidence that you do to do what you do because otherwise they'll, they'll steal your business. And that's a real scarcity mentality. But there's mm-hmm. a lot of small business owners who have that. And I think that's, there's a difference between a practice, which is it's me and I'm, I'm involved in everything every day and a business where if I get hit by a bus, this thing still runs. And I realized my job to my family was I needed to be that indispensable to my business so that if something happened to me, because basically you take on the infirmity of the child that is born to you right? You take on the infirmity of your spouse. You may be in a wheelchair tomorrow. What would it look like if you had to run your business that way? And yeah. how, would you make, how would you make sure that you provided for your family? And not only that, to provide for other people's families better than if you were totally physically able to do everything on your own. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the perspective he gave me. 
So how did you how did you find out about what was it called like spinal SMA spinal yeah. muscular atrophy SMA? Um, how did you find out that someone was wrong? He was born. <laughs> yeah. um, we had no idea. We had no idea what was what was coming down the tracks. We thought you know four other super healthy kids just fine. I mean everybody's got their defects, but our kids are, you know, <laughs> um, none of them terminal at the time, right? And then JP's born and he's having trouble breathing. He was, um, he was bruised head to toe because these kids, especially as severe as he was, he was so severe. We couldn't find anybody as severe as John Paul, as young as he was in the nation. If you've ever known anybody personally who's sick or you've been sick before, you can get online and pop into a community of people who have the same illness really quickly. And so we couldn't find anybody in those forums who was even close to where he was. Yeah. So we found out about five weeks after he was born, they thought, well, maybe it's just a traumatic birth. Maybe there's, there's a spinal cord injury. It's really weird to hope that your kid has a spinal cord injury because that's more curable than SMA, Mm. right? Just to put it in perspective, because nobody at the time had ever survived SMA, right? There's no cure. That's what it was. And you go through a mourning process in your mind as a parent, you think, okay, I'm going to have a child just like the other four. And then this one's born. You you mourn the loss of the fact that initially, well, he's all bruised up and he's not exactly, we can't take him home initially. And then you mourn the loss of the reality that he's not going to be able to breathe on his own. And he, so he had a trach. Um, he was on a, a ventilator. He won't be able to eat on his own. He had a G tube and we fed him through bolus feedings. He's not going to be able to play soccer, right? You go through all these things that you were hoping for your child that you didn't even know you hoped for. You just assume that this was going to be the case. And then it switches. You start to go, what a gift this child is. And the realization that really God gave us an immense, all of your children are, are, are gifts. If you're blessed to have children, each child is a gift. Each child has a calling to change the world, to impact the world massively. And, you know, just to fast forward on this, John Paul, I was 33, really kind of cool year to have major suffering in your life, right? Yeah. Um, so 33, JP, you know, during that, that year of my life is around. And I guess what's worth noting about him is he impacted thousands and thousands of people. We may never be able to count how many, how many people he impacted. We've had people email us and send us letters from Australia who've read his story and who have said, changed my life. I've converted. This is amazing, right? So if you realize that that's the, that's the power of a soul, like God wants to use souls that way. (laughs) And most of the time we just do a really good job of getting in the way of his plans. (laughs) Um, and JP couldn't do anything on his own. And God was able to use that vessel of clay in an absolutely beautiful way. And so that's the, the question that I constantly ask myself now is, all right, so Lord, if I'm going to get in the way all the time, I need to ask you regularly, do I have the right vehicle for my talents? You've given me certain talents. Some of these talents you can use for great good. So which ones do you want me to put at your disposal? And do I have the right vehicle right now? And in business, I think the question to ask is, is my business the right vehicle for my talents to impact more souls? And if that becomes your paradigm, then I think you have a tremendously fulfilling business. And in a capitalist structure, which we have here, it's also monetizable, right? And as a dad, I have an obligation to, to monetize my talents. And what I've realized is that those talents have to involve other people. Mm-hmm. I, I've got talents that I could monetize, but it wouldn't involve souls or maybe the, enough souls. We got to kind of put those aside and, and work on, on the ones that I think God's calling me to. Could you tell me about like one of the first moments where you started to transition from grief to like gratitude in your perspective in your life? Maybe it was a conversation with your wife or a moment in prayer. Yeah, I think it's a constant battle, right? Like God gives us the cross to be grateful for it. Hmm. The image that I have, a couple images of just our Lord, you know, on Calvary, embracing the cross, thanking his father for the opportunity to save the world. But at the same time, there's nothing to like about it on a human level. Right. Right. And I think that is, that's what real leadership is. You know, God, Christ is the perfect leader. And so he embraces perfect suffering and he embraces perfect joy in that suffering. Right. right? And when you're grieving though, like obviously that it takes grace to even get to the point of being able to embrace that cross. Like I remember yeah. in 
In great times of suffering for myself, you know, I went through a breakup in 2011 with the girl that I thought that I was going to marry. And, and for me, it was this, it was such like personal brokenness and experience mm -hmm, of like mm -hmm. all the plans that I had and the future life that I had been dreaming of kind of like being taken. And yeah. it took a certain amount of just like showing up in my anger with God to get to the point where I could like release that and accept this sort of, all right, this cross, this thing, this brokenness is going to be the thing that like out of which, you know, resurrection and beauty and all these other gifts are going to be born. And I can't see that right now, but like, I'm going to embrace this and love it and make that decision to be grateful for it. Where were some of the moments where you kind of did that? It's the right question. What are some of the moments? Because we're not angelic beings. We don't make a perfect yeah. act of the will and then, okay, we're good, right? Or we see perfect, like you can see with clarity that this is going to be all right. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't make your will get there, right? Fast enough. Yeah. So that's why mourning is a process. And actually, I think we're deprived of real mourning in the first world. I had to wait all this time to actually see somebody pass away who yeah. I loved, right? In a lot of countries, death is all around. There's this grappling with death and mourning that is just very human. And here we go, death and mourning, like you, you can't handle that. We're going to put this person over to the side out of the melee of real life, in quotation marks. The mass was fundamental. And I go to daily mass and daily mass you know, and just, just unifying my suffering to Christ's suffering and just saying, you know, and that's a really, you know, existential idea, right? But when you have great suffering, it's unifiable. You can, you can put it on the patent. You can say, Lord, take this. I can't handle this cross. And the idea that transitioned for me was one, this is Christ's cross that I get to be a part of. It's not my cross. He's allowing me to carry on my own. Two, that if he's asking me to carry this cross, he's giving me super abundant grace to take care of it. And so like we had grace. The best description I can give you is like, it's like grace at this level that we were given. If you keep saying yes to the cross, God gives you grace that you can't even imagine. It blows your mind. Like, it, it, it's like spiritual drugs. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I haven't done any like psychedelic, psychedelic things, right? But, um, but because it gives you energy and power for the fight that you cannot possibly dream of. And you see this with like, look at St. Paul, right? Where'd he get all that? Yeah. Yeah. He was a choleric, whatever, you know, like nobody does that without massive grace. And, mm. and to, to be counted to say like, all right, I'm going to give you this, right? I'm going to have you step onto the, step off of the sidelines of life and into the game and it's going to hurt. And I'm going to give you everything you need for it. And realizing it was actually in during John Paul's life that it was like people got kind of come up to him and go, how are you doing this? You go, it's not me. It's God. Like we, I just show up, I work hard and I trust that he is taking care of me mm -hmm. and I trust that he's going to take care of my son. I will bleed myself for the mission that he has in mind. And so his mission became much more important than mine. And when his mission becomes more important than yours, then the game is so much more fun. Like, and yeah. it's so much more gratifying. When I realized we were part of his mission to change the world through my son, then his, clearly his vision of the court is much better than mine. His vision of, of the playing field is much better than mine. So I'm just going to work at this corner of it as dad to this, to yeah. this son. So I think that idea pervaded, but that happened through masses, through conversations with my wife. We're blessed with tremendous priests in our life who came and, and just spent time with us. Great spiritual direction. Got to get the confession. Like, like it's, you got to use all the means of grace to just put on the armor, right? And we, we have all these military images in the church of like the church militant, right? Like why? Because when you're dealing with crazy stuff like this, you know, with real turmoil, you have to put on the armor of Christ. It's not like, it actually, you need it. You need it so that you can function in society, not only function in society, but like lay waste to the things that, that, that our Lord is saying, go get that, like go, go after that goal. And that goal is done through a sacrifice of staying up late with your son. That goal mm -hmm. is through changing the diaper. That goal is made possible through putting your spouse first. All these little things that other people just see. And so yeah. I think the other thing that, that it made me realize is my family life and God's going to change the world through great families. And he wants my family to be great. And he wants all Christian families to be great, right? So, and through that, through that vehicle, he'll change the world. We were told in the hospital, well, you should probably just stop feeding him now because it's going to be way too hard for your family. And 86% of the families that lose a child and have to suffer through what you're, what you're signing up for, they end in divorce. 
Okay, so thanks for the statistic. We're not going to be a statistic. And we're going to really know we have the means to fight for him. We discern that it was an appropriate use of those means to use what is extraordinary means to, to keep him alive during, you know, during most of his life to fight the battle. So that's kind of, I don't know if that, that answers your question, but it, it's a process and it's a constant balancing act. And I think still, I use the same paradigms now in business and in, you know, my role as father to the other children as well and his husband. Man, there's just so much beauty in that and so many questions that I want to ask about it. It sounds like there was, even as a part of the decision of like embracing the cross, you all, you were also deciding in a very concrete way to like, yeah, keep him alive and to stay in the suffering, you know, when you could have taken an easier way out. You let that paradigm of like leaning into the suffering be the thing that ended up being the, the, the central like priority of your life. And that ended up bearing fruit in your business and in your fatherhood and in your life. I, I just think it's a, such a beautiful witness of like the, the lay vocation of fatherhood of like living a mysticism that's that's the center from which for-profit businesses can come from, but also like, <laughs> yeah. you know, really, really amazing families. And when you say it's families that are going to you know, change the world. It's the redemption of the family unit that's going to do that. I just can't, I cannot agree more. I've been reading this book and I talk about it on the podcast, like more than any other book called, it's called Family Fortunes. And mm. it's a book about basically how families can stay together through multiple generations and pass down wealth. It's got this opening that's just amazing where it talks about like families actually are the oldest institutions, not countries. And that there's families that are in existence right now that have lasted longer and stayed together as an as an institution as a family institution longer than longer than the United States of America. It blew my mind because it just shifted like all of my thinking from like building an organization is like this one thing and then building a family is this like other thing that they're actually like both the same and Organ organizations serve the family. If they don't do that, they're worthless. It's just, yeah. I think we have to, as Catholics, we have to really understand that. If the organization you're building does not serve the family or does not serve, like, where do we get the poor? How do we take care of the poor? We take care of the poor through the vehicle of the family. Mm -hmm. How, where, where do vocations come from? Come from families. Where, where are we going to get more priests? Families. Yeah. You know, where are we going to get more, more great schools? Families who start them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who say, this is what, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get great art. It's going to be through you know, moms who introduce their kids to, to great art and great, great philosophy, you know, and, and you're going to have these great things. So you, you touched on a point and I just want to throw this out there as well. I think the lie that we have to, I think, especially as dads, but I think just societally, we have to, to get past is that you can actually avoid the cross. You can avoid suffering. Like uh, you can try <laughs> good luck. Another stat that the, the doctors are throwing out these stats. Great, by the way, awesome doctors. We had amazing doctors, but so many of them have been trained in, in this idea that that if I can't fix it, then it's not worth fighting for. Hmm. It's a very, very dangerous, right? It's, it's really a center of pride, just manipulated, um, but and it's it's taught, right? And the lie that that the objective of life is to avoid suffering is actually not Christian. And I think we go into marriage with this romanticized idea that that's what marriage is going to be about, like life's going to be better. No, actually, it may, may be humanly far more difficult. In fact, if it's not eventually, you may not be in the game. You may not be in the game in, in a, like, you know, I think of sports all the time, contact sports. It, you can stand on the sidelines and enjoy the game a lot. But if you're in there on the football field and rugby field, you know, getting slide tackled or, you know, on the mat, you're going to make contact. And our Lord wants you there. How many times a day do you make contact? You know, how many times a day are you, or what is what you're doing making contact with the world in a way that, that can spread the joy of the gospel and share the, share the joy that you have with others. And it sounds like for you, contact is like suffering, like that bearing your cross, being in the game, like you're going to, if you're going to bear joy and bear the Christian message, bear Christ to the world, like contact is going to happen where you're experiencing suffering. Yeah, there's friction. Right. Like, yeah. you know, there's business paradigms, you know, no, no pressure, no diamonds type idea. Right. Like you can't get good stuff without putting together the system to, to actually have friction and relationships happen because of intimacy. Intimacy happens because of friction, because of human a, a vulnerability 
of human beings to connect with each mm-hmm. other. Business is a great vehicle for that. Life is a great vehicle for that, but business in particular within life can be a great, should be a great vehicle for that, for human intimacy, for fighting for people's human dignity in their mm-hmm. work, for giving them, how often do you run into somebody you go, and you go, well, how was your day? Or, you know, how's work? And they're like, eh, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, just same old stuff. I've been doing the same old thing. Well, in some ways they've been robbed of their dignity. In some ways they're responsible for that as well. Right. Like, mm-hmm. um, you have, you have options, but I think we get in this mentality that like the sort of the Eeyore mentality and, and you're going to be able to suffer. You're going to have opportunities to suffer in different ways throughout your life. I think in, in many ways, Alain and I were sort of stretched to a point where we now have a capacity for tough things that we didn't have before. Now you're there, the muscles are there. How are you going to use them mm-hmm. on a human level? Yeah. Going back to my thing about family and fatherhood and like creative fatherhood, there's an entrepreneurship that it sounds like you had been building up these skills for building a business that got some gasoline poured on him through suffering and through grace that then in that moment were applied to your family. And I'm wondering what rituals, what practices, what things do you do that other families don't do that led to you being able to stay together in your marriage? And obviously the, the natural vehicles for, for grace, like going to mass and things like that. But what, what are the things that you do that other people don't because of that? It's a great question. I think the simple things that, that you know, compounded over time, right? And this is another business principle, but, but the right things compounded over time lead to exponential results. Family dinner, is sacred and we get to, we sit down as family every night for dinner we actually this year we started not allowing the kids to actually do sports on sundays which is a huge sacrifice especially in our area you know travel sports our kids are really competitive i don't know where they got that from but um they're <laughs> you know so it's like but it's a, and it's a sacrifice for me because i'm like no we need to go win like we need to go beat that kid like this, this would be great you know but my wife is amazing at sort of the family building the family culture within the home. She, she's like, she is totally the CEO of the house and is very purposeful about a lot of these practices um, around the home. So the, those are two examples. I think we have a ritual of every Saturday morning, I take one of the kids out one-on-one for breakfast because again, it's that yeah, human intimacy. So we wake up a little bit earlier, they have to wake up a little bit, go to an early mass and then go to one of the, their choice of a diner just so that you're really you know, building that, that friendship, that relationship and, and that, that openness to the conversation with dad. And Elena does the same thing with the kids in, in a different way. You know, and again, th- those things compound over time. We're very purposeful about how we educate our kids in, and I think, you know, the outside world kind of goes, well, that's a little extreme, but like, you know, we've had them in different school systems. Elena pulled the younger two. Um, who are school aged last year and, and decided to homeschool and just took the bull by the horns and, and they're flourishing, both of them. And they're both very different kids. You know, and that's not going to be, you know, we kind of know they're, they're not, they're probably not going to be homeschooled all the way through. But for right now, just this purposeful disposition of what does this soul need right now in order to go from here to here over mm-hmm. the next three months, 12 months, whatever it is. And so we, we do, we do, you know, once a, once a year at least, we'll sit down and just have a conversation. Elena and I usually on vacation, we just, you know, get a babysitter and, and go out and talk through each one of the kids and ask, okay, what does this one need this year? How can we be purposeful about Joey's growth spiritually, you know, emotionally, physically? How can we be good coaches to him? How can we, you know, love him, love him into the right virtues, right? I think also, you know, it's on a human level. Your job is to help instill the virtues in your kids. Without, without the virtues, you can't pile on grace. You know, if you have a kid that lacks humility, you know, when they're still 18, they won't take direction well, they won't find good mentors, you have an issue. So th- that's another ritual of, you know, on an annual basis. We started vacationing in a more isolated place. So we would actually have like a more contemplative vacation. We, we did the beach thing. It was like not contemplative at all. Um, and we'd feel more stressed after it. And, uh, and so, you know, the kids bring books. We're also like totally not plugged in. So Mm -hmm. like our kids don't even ask to watch TV. Um, Wow. How did you do that? It's it's like, we have a TV right in the middle of our, of our family room too. It's like, you have freedom to turn the thing on. Good luck with that though. Like they, our kids read voraciously, some more than others. Some we go, your, your reading habits need to be pulled back in because you're reading too much, right? Um, our kids are like 
free range, you know, they, they go out in the backyard, they build forts. I'm raising kids, not grass in the backyard. So it's muddy. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Um, it's hard to look at sometimes, you know, I go up like, oh, I'm in real estate. So like, I, I like pretty houses. This, my backyard would not sell very well right now. Um, so, you know, those, those types of ideas. Mm. So let me move from that to the business. Obviously, you've built a business that is very family business oriented, right? Like you are working with your dad and with your brother and those they're in key roles. And it sounds like the way that you've built your business, it's serving your family, both in that in terms of facilitating relationships between you guys and deepening them. But also, what are some other ways that you've merged rather than balanced your two, I guess, your relationship with your business and with your fatherhood? How are you like the father of your business? I have this sort of this, this, maybe it's a graphic in my mind. If fatherhood is about instilling the virtues, then business should be that as well. And I think societally, there's a lot of people don't have great father figures in their life. The business, I can train and teach and coach people within the business, um, which is basically what I'm doing. I, most of my day is, is in training agents and teams. And now we're, we've been asked to train outside of real estate as well, which is really cool. You can train things that, that are important for business, you know, how to look at your finances, how to do all this stuff. But you, what you're really training are the virtues through those vehicles, right? Just like when you're teaching your kid how to do math, you're also teaching the virtue of order. Mm. And if you're, if you're thinking about that very specifically, as you're doing that, you're, you're, you're thinking about them. You're thinking about them, their soul, right? Aristotle talks about the greatest thing you can do for your friends is, is be concerned for their souls. And he focuses on the virtues, right? Well, that's what we're doing in business. And if you're doing that as sort of the, the first domino to souls, right? My, our, our, our job is to make sure people are, you know, have the virtue of humility, courage, fortitude, magnanimity, right? Self-control, um, self-mastery, if you will. If people can come to my companies and derive those things, they will feel tremendously invested into, even if they can't articulate why they feel invested into. And mm -hmm. that gives people great dignity. And it also allows them to become leaders. I also have a firm belief that there are no great saints who didn't, who didn't acquire virtue. I think that, you know, that, that's it's one of the tests, right, for sainthood. And that virtue is fundamental to leadership. You cannot separate the two. If the world is about forming leaders in that paradigm, then you change the world because you can't be a saint without being a leader mm. if you follow that, that logic, right? And it, leadership does not mean having great charism. You know, mm. leadership does not mean, you know, standing up and, and, and getting people all fired up about things. That's, a, that's yeah. a personality trait maybe, or maybe that's a learned skill, but that's not what leadership necessarily is. Yeah, we just, so Sherwood Fellows were much more at the beginning of, uh, of the process of growth where you guys are at. But one of the things that uh, we've, in this beginning stage that we've been really focusing on and taking our own counsel to heart, we hired another outside agency to, to brand us and to help us walk through our core beliefs and our core values. And it was a big thing to cough up for like a, a little startup, you know, yeah. uh, a big expense. But what it showed me was in a way that was very concrete, like here are the hills for you to die on. Like mm. all of the hills for you to die on are right here. And if you die on these hills and you show the people that you're working with that you're willing to do that, then you are going to grow as an organization in terms of like health, in terms of your clientele. It's one of the most convicting things I've ever experienced. It made it very clear where I was giving myself slack or allowing myself to violate my own principles. Mm -hmm. And in giving me that self-awareness, like it was just this huge rocket fuel injection of, of virtue and personal growth and holiness for me. I now had to be willing to say no to business that didn't fit my core values and willing to deal with the consequences of that. So sacrifice, like the cross, everything that you're talking about with willingness to embrace that, like it has pushed me to experience and be willing to embrace suffering for the sake of my values and for the things that I believe. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm sure that in your fatherhood, both for your business and with, with your kids, you've had to incarnate for them what it looks like to sacrifice for the things that you believe. Like what have been some moments where you've had to do that and show them real risk, real sacrifice for your beliefs? Wow, it's a great, great question. 
So to my children in you know my natural children, right? Is what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. And, and your business, <clears throat> uh, either both. Let's do one for each. Yeah. So you you want to you want to give your kids example of this in the natural way, right? So I think as a, as a dad, you, you the the focus has to be on your bride, right? Because if they don't understand how you sacrifice for your bride, they won't understand Christ's sacrifice for the church. With my wife, Elena, I mean, you know, the opportunities are there all the time, right? Like she's, you know, 17 weeks pregnant, tired. Those are the, you know, hey, let me, why don't you let me hold the baby? Why don't you let me change that diaper? Why don't you let me run out to the store and pick up that prescription or whatever it is, right? It's those things just done nat- with naturalness it's, it's really little things. If you think about the big things, like, oh, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run up this hill for, for Elena. And those, those chances don't present themselves nearly as much as the little things on, on a daily basis to, to sacrifice yourself. And I think that's why people trust leaders. They show up day in and day out and do that. Like, I think my kids actually think that I like waking up at 4.15 in the morning. <laughs> Right, because <laughs> like, like, they're little, right? Um, and 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 like when they get to wake up early with me, it's kind of a cool thing, right? You know, like not so cool for the twelve-year-old now, but like the little ones. Um, and so I think they're beginning to see that my my sort of daily habits and routines are there for my wife and my family, and and that you know it'd be easier to sleep in, but God has called me to too much for me to sleep another hour. Yeah. So I think there's those things. I think on, on the business level, I think it's the same. People have to know that you'll bleed for them, that you'll, you will go down first and you'll continually do that day in, day out. And again, in, in little things. So somebody has a need and you're, and it's a legitimate need and, and you can drop what you're doing and take care of them. You know, I'm not talking about being reactionary. I'm talking about when you show up being really lights out at counseling people and taking care of them and that sort of thing. Just being a leader who's available to people. Not- so what's like one of the ways that you've had to do that in the last couple of months for an employee or somebody in your business? You know, there, there's a guy on our team. He's actually become a good good friend of mine. He was a past client and, and joined us. And he's he's one of the part owners of the brokerage now because he's become that huge of a player for us. And John has 10 kids. He wanted to go down to Florida and, and coach his oldest two for their high school baseball team. But when he, when he leaves, it's all hands on deck because he does a lot. And, you know, he's great. He's a great example for so many people here in, in the office. Internally, my reaction was, seriously, you have to do this? Like, <laughs> this is so damn inconvenient, right? Like, um, like on a human level, you're like, you... Like you're, you, you just took a vacation, like in the summer, what are you doing? Right. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, it's my intensity, you know, and so just to go, Hey, that's awesome. Go spend the time, like to see that what he wants to do is spend very specific quality time with his boys and they give him, you know, and to not make it an issue of, Hey, I'm giving you freedom. Like there, there's, there's no tit for tat, you know, Hey, you're going to have to do this when you get back sort of thing. That's one. And just. I think just being aware of people's family lives and facilitating. I'm really fortunate to have built a culture where I know when people show up to work, they are working hard. And so I mm-hmm. never have a problem when people have family things that, that they need help with. And to support them specifically in those family needs is, is a great joy. And, and um, you know, while, while it's inconveniencing, you know, other people and you, I think also leaders can help other people see what a great thing it is that he's doing this and encourage that. It lends itself to such a great culture yeah. to be able to do that for, for a business. Yeah. A culture of activated and healthy employees that are all members of healthy families, I'm sure is going to beat a lay everything down and make all the sacrifices, even your families for the the business cause. Like I, I just could imagine if those two businesses went up against each other, the the one with the healthy families would win like every single time, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, you see, you see, well, I mean, I see it all the time with people in the real estate world and, and frankly, in, in a lot of industries, there is a direct correlation between people's middle and long-term efficacy of what they do and their the, the stability of their family lives. Just tremendous. And it's undeniable. Um, and you can tell if you're astute at all, who's going through turmoil on a family level. And, you know, what a great example John's family life is to so many who, it's not like we hire all Johns right here. Right. And, um, and so we have lots of other people who are watching and they're watching to see, you know, you know, the lie is what John's doing with his family life and being generous, you know, and having these, these children, he and, and Mary Lou, the lie is that that's insane. 
or that yeah. I couldn't do that, or they must have superhuman powers, all these other things. It's all, I mean, they're fantastic people, but the lies that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly be that generous. And you want to allow him to, to show up as a well-adjusted, fantastic leader who also, and in many ways, is that because of his fatherhood? Yeah, it's amazing. So uh, I know we're coming up on time here and I don't want to take up too much more. My last question is, we brought you on the podcast because in the Catholic creatives community, one of the things that we really believe is that there isn't a, there isn't like this box of creative that is a certain type of personality or a kid with the right kind of horn-rimmed circle glasses and hmm. skinny jeans that designs things, that creativity is actually at the core of like what it means to be human and that creating something is a problem solving, thinking outside of the box. That's a universal human thing that we need to stimulate in the church and is across every single industry. So real estate, fatherhood, design, it's a core first principle that all of us need and all of us use. But specifically for the people that are listening to this podcast who might be working more in the the creative industry, in quotations, the people who are not in the business of real estate or finance or economics, what advice would you have for them as it pertains to growing businesses and being able to live the lay vocation as creatives? What, what advice mm -hmm. do you have? I think ask yourself if you have the right vehicle for your talents. If, if you're asking yourself that question, I think to also pigeonhole yourself as, oh, I'm a creative, therefore I don't do these other things. That could easily be a cop out. And I think, you know, it's, it's the same lie, you know, families tell themselves, well, you know, I, I'm, we're this way, therefore we couldn't possibly gen be generous in this way, right? You're actually called to be generous in your vocation and your vocation has to affect souls. And so, um, do you have the right vehicle and are you being as generous as possible in your knowledge that you've acquired in order to, to gain the skill sets that you need in order to deploy your talents to the world, mm -hmm. right? So there's usually a gap in business between, and, and in particular with people who are very dependent on, on themselves for, for what they produce, right? And which is most people, most workers are workers who produce a product and they sell it. The gap between where you want to go and where you want to, where you want to be, where you are and where you want to be ultimately is a question of skill set. So what skill set do I need? What knowledge do I need to acquire? What habits, which are the basis of virtue, do I need to acquire in order to fuel inject this talent that I have? right? And in order to, to, to put it into the world. And then what will amaze you is you add God to that, you add grace to that and a willingness to submit your talents to him. And then it goes, it goes crazy. You know, it gets set on fire. So for businesses who may be listening to this, I'll, uh, you know, maybe just throw this out there. I think most businesses, if you think your business is about transactions, you are going to be commoditized very quickly, you know, with the disruptive forces of in, in all industries right now, your job is to be a creative. Your job is to innovate, which is, you know, and the basis of innovation is creation, is, is being creative. And it's also very godly. It's also very like God created, right? And he made us in his image and likeness. I think you have to be convinced that my job is not just to show up and put out fires as a leader, right? My job is to is to innovate and, and be creative. And you actually have to put aside time to be creative, to push the ball forward. Even but how you, do you do that when you're like running a business and there's so many fires and like the reason why I react so strongly <laughs> is that I know this, I know this so, so deeply, but as soon as I get back in, you know, I took like this amazing creative retreat during January and then it's like, I'm going to just take more time. I'm going to dwell apart and like have the vision. And then I like get sucked into the slipstream of problems. Yeah. And uh, how, how do you like cultivate a, a life that allows you to have that separation? Well, we've come full circle. It's you have to <laughs> sacrifice in order to get it. Yeah. Right. You have to be willing to do what other people are not willing to do to get it, to, to have that time. Right. And if time, you know, time is a gift. And if we're not willing to use that time for godly activities, right, you know, and, and this creative activity can be beautiful and, and should be sectioned out. But for me, I wake up early, my routine is 4.15. And from 4.15 to 6 o'clock, I am doing creative work. Right? I'm working on the strategy for the business. I'm working on the blog post. I'm working on the next podcast. I'm working on a solution for somebody's family 
you know, dynamics so that they can accelerate their, their, their professional growth. I'm in a place where I'm, and I'm not distracted. The, the, the computer's not on or it doesn't have any internet connectivity. The phone is on do not disturb on the other side of the room. And, and you got to lock down that time because it's so easy to be so distracted. You know, if you wake up, if I wake up and I, and I check my email, that time is destroyed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a question, you know, going back to the virtues, question of self-mastery to be contemplative. Mm. It's the same. How do you have time for prayer? Same way. You, you actually have to put your, your life has to be about sectioning off time for that, for God to speak to you and you to speak to him and to build a relationship. Otherwise, so what's that morning happen. routine look like? It, you wake up at 4.15 and just start writing or like, do you like, you know, you go have coffee, you take a shower, you work out and then you get down. Yeah. So it's pretty simple. 4.15, nobody, nobody else is awake. So nobody else is bothering me unless, I mean, this thing can bother you. The, the, the phone can bother you big time, you know, so with, with all of it. So my phone basically stays on do not disturb all the time. So only a few people can get through to me you know, during the day, because there's no fire, by the way, that needs to be taken care of now, right? Especially when you have a kid with special needs on a ventilator, nothing is that important, right? So I I learned that, you know, through some real testing, but I wake up and I go downstairs, big glass of water, 30 to 50 push-ups, espresso, start writing. Wow. So I'm writing within 10 minutes of waking up. But the, the real key is the night before I have a planner, that I'm an old school planner, right? So I actually fill this out. It sits on my desk. But so I take what's in my phone on my, on my calendar and I, and I put it into the planner on an hourly, actually half hour basis. So I know exactly what it, what's going to happen. And I know what my session in the morning is going to be about. So when I go to bed, you know, last minute prayers before bed, I go to bed. I actually have a place for an examination of conscience at the bottom of this. And, and so I do an examination of conscience and then write down, here's what I'm doing tomorrow. And I actually have a column for the people that I offer that up for on the side of it. So I know who I'm working for, um, mm-hmm. you know, because again, it's about souls, right? So I'm offering my work that way and then I can, I can get after it. And so when I wake up, I, I don't have to ask myself, well, what am I waking up for at 4.15 in the morning? Mm-hmm. It's not a creative process to become creative. Yeah. Right, it's a regimented process so that you can get into creativity routinely every day, five days a week. Right, so that's what it has to look like. Otherwise, you know, there's a lot of people who rely on my, on my vision, on 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 what I'm producing. That that night before, mm-hmm. you're. So it sounds like you have to take time the night before as well. Like, what? How do you? How do you do that? It's five so I know minutes. you got. Okay. It's it's you know it, it's a it's a routine. We should, we could do another one on this, but it's um. Yeah. And, but I'm happy to keep talking on it. This is one of my favorite <laughs> things, right? Like I have a lot of responsibilities in my life. I run, you know, I've got three different businesses now, you know, you get the coaching company, you got the brokers, I've got the, the Kilmer group and I've got a lot of, a lot of people who rely on me and I'm available. I'm very available to all of them plus family life, but I have time each night that's designated for Elena and I to catch up. Um, I have time designated, you know, we, we have that family dinner time to just hang with the kids, you know, whether it's you know, sports and that sort of thing. And, and so after six o'clock, I'm dad, like full time. And that allows me, and then I'm, I'm, I'm asleep by between nine fifteen and 10 o'clock. So mm-hmm. I know personally that I can get seven, six and a half, seven hours a day of sleep. If I work out at least once, then I'm good. So then in the morning at six o'clock, I work out. And right after that morning prayer, and then shower up, get the kids to school, mass before I hit the office, then then the whirlwind hits. But mm-hmm. I basically won my day before eight o'clock in the morning. So I love that. That is such a great way to end, man. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, for, my uh, pleasure. This is awesome. It, it's really humbling that uh, <laughs> that you would ask me to be on it, really, Anthony. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's been like such a treasure of, uh, there's so many moments when I've just wanted to fist pump because of like <laughs> how amazing of a statement you just made. It's a, uh, it's such a treasure trove. And, and it's, it's something that like, what I love is just how intentional you are about everything, but also like being able to really have to see inside to see like, oh yeah, this guy's success comes from like a deep discipline to the contemplative life and to like the vocation of a father. Like there's so few examples of that in the world and seeing it is like amazing. So well, yeah. I'm, I'm totally honored. By the way, um, you had sent me some questions earlier and I was hoping you would ask this one. But, oh, no. <laughs> um, recommended book. My favorite recommended book, if, if you don't mind me. Throwing yeah, this yeah, one let's do it. 
Over the last 18 months, almost definitely Cal Newport's book called Deep Work. Yeah. Phenomenal book. And actually, it really, I'm reading it for a fourth time now. Um, wow. Because from a, when it comes to that, that idea of being creative in the midst of, of, of the whirlwind of life, um, whatever your whirlwind is, he makes a tremendous case and, uh, and offers some great advice there. So I really like his stuff. So Good They Can't Ignore You is another one of his books. Really, really excellent as well. Amazing. Well, I will recommend that everybody listening to this buy that book and uh, we'll all read it together <laughs> Cool. <laughs> and make a post about it. So yeah, thanks so much, Patrick, for coming on. Awesome, Anthony. It's my pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, a real honor. So anytime. All right. All right, man. Well, have a good rest of your week, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing seeing how your fatherhood bears more fruit as you as you roll. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, pray uh, for me. Yeah. Okay, we'll do. God bless. See you, man. In 2016, we issued a call to creatives, entrepreneurs, designers, and artists from all over the continent to come together in Dallas because we believed that the time was ripe for a new renaissance to take place in the church. 85 of the most talented young Catholic leaders in the Americas answered the call, coming together because of this shared vision. And what took place at that summit was a flowering of community that was beyond description. And it is now clear that new da Vinci's, Mozart's, Michelangelo's, Beethoven's, and Medici's are being brought together to blaze new trails for the gospel, to build new businesses, ministries, and works of art that will be catalysts for massive culture change. And if you are listening to this, then you have also answered this call, and we are so grateful for your participation in this movement. If you want to hear more from the speakers, participate in monthly professional development webinars, and be publicly represented on the Catholic Creatives website, you can make this happen by supporting us on Patreon. Your support and your commitment are vital for the growth and mission of Catholic Creatives. And the rewards are awesome. So your help means everyone can benefit even more from our community this year as we sponsor our creative projects and plan next year's summit. The time is ripe for a new renaissance, a counter wave of beauty. Our world needs aesthetically and philosophically articulate leaders, artists, creatives, and risk takers. Our world needs you. We'll look forward to hearing more from you in the community on Facebook and Slack and at the regional meetups and at the summit. We'll see you there.